Our reading for today is from Song of Songs, chapter 5. He came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers liquid with myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when, when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than any other beloved that thus that you thus adjure us. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a pool, full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Um, last, last year, the Surgeon General shared some alarming new data about loneliness. He wrote in the New York Times that according to research from the Cigna Group and uh, the National Library of Medicine, that, and I quote, one out of every two Americans is experiencing measurable levels of loneliness. This includes introverts and extroverts, rich and poor, young and older Americans. So what he is suggesting and what the data is telling us is that across the country, people are lonely. But what exactly does that mean? What, what exactly is it that we are feeling? Perhaps right away you identify with that and you're like, I don't need any further explanation. I know what he's talking about. Uh, Susan Metz, who's a behavioral scientist and researcher, defines loneliness um, in her book, The Loneliness Epidemic, as the distress someone feels when their social connections don't meet their need for emotional intimacy. She goes on to explain that loneliness is lack. It's disappointment. It's something we are conscious of even when we don't call it loneliness. Loneliness, she says, is a thirst that drives us to seek companionship or perhaps better, fellowship. Fellowship. 
without fellowship, we go on needing others and seeking relief for that need. So loneliness is the absence of something that is deeply human, something instinctive to us, something we can't live without. Loneliness, as we will categorize it today, is a lack of intimacy. If you remember at the beginning of the Christian story, God looks at Adam and it's you know, kind of sad. <laughs> he looks at him and he's all by himself. He sees him in, in isolation and loneliness. He's standing by himself in the middle of this wonderful creation, and in loneliness, God says to him, it is not good that the man should be alone. And he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, in all of creation, the only thing that God ever said wasn't good. Everything else is good. The one not good thing is Adam by himself. Now, in most evangelical Christian circles, this verse has been the victim of two very, very bad interpretations. The first one is that Eve is subservient to Adam. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, that she's just a helper. And I tried to help correct that thinking for us uh, a couple chapters ago. The other misguided teaching, though, deserves our attention today. That God's observation, many have suggested, is a commentary on marriage. In other words that the thing that's not good about Adam is that he's not married. How many of you have felt that for the past 2,000 years? That that's what God was talking about. That he needs a woman. He needs a wife. He is helpless all by himself in the wilderness of life. He needs help. Marriage, many of us have been taught, is the place, in other words, where we find intimacy, where loneliness is eradicated. But What if that's not true? What if God's not talking about marriage? What if he's talking about our humanity? What if he's saying that it's not good to live without intimacy? What if from the very beginning, God was telling us the same thing that the Surgeon General of the United States is telling us? We're lonely and that's not good. One of the many reasons I think where we act we react rather negatively to the biblical, the Bible sexual ethic, is because we conflate sex and intimacy. So we ache for intimacy, but then we read that God prohibits sex outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. And so we essentially just go, well, what gives if that's true? If I ache for intimacy, but I can't perhaps have intimacy the way that I believe that I desire it and need it, or the one place where I can get it. Sam Alberry explains that we've believed the lie that the choice between marriage and celibacy is the choice between intimacy and loneliness. The choice between marriage and celibacy is the choice between intimacy and loneliness. He explains that this is a misunderstanding of both marriage and intimacy. Marriage and sex, can I testify to you, do not end loneliness. And I'm sure many of you can testify that intimacy is not reserved for marriage. We have misunderstood these categories. The Bible tells us something better, that what our souls, I think, already know, what we really need is friendship. We need friendship. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about friendship in and outside of marriage. I want to talk about how friendship fosters real intimacy and why some marriages don't. Why friendship fosters real intimacy and why sometimes marriage doesn't. Here's how we'll organize our time together. As we have in the previous four 
uh, iterations of this series, we'll look at the design, the distortion, and the healing. So we'll look at the design of friendship, we'll look at the distortion of friendship, and then finally, uh, the healing of friendship. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, um, I know sometimes when I think about friendship, it just seems kind of simple, so why in the world would we spend a Sunday morning considering it? And yet then I look at my life and realize how hard friendship can be, how challenging of a friend or an absent-minded of a friend I know I can be. And so, Father, would you teach us, as you're so kind to do through your word by your spirit, would you reveal lies that we have trusted, that we believed in? Would you expose pain, wounds, places where there needs to be healing? Would you reshape our minds as you've promised to do in your word, that you would renew our minds, that you would transform us? You bring wholeness, healing, truth, and beauty to our lives. And so we, we simply are, are asking you to be you. Teach us, help us, heal us, and be our friend through this text. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the many challenging things of interpreting the Song of Psalms, which I've had many conversations with you about, which has been thrilling and joyful and frustrating and wonderful, um, is determining when exactly does the couple consummate their marriage. Because it changes a lot of the reading, perhaps. With all the sensuality and poetic language, there are many times where it seems like maybe the couple is describing something or maybe aspiring to something or actually experiencing something. But this particular poem or collection of poems is like many poems. It's not chronological necessarily. It, therefore, that at the end of maybe chapter 3 or chapter 4, it's hard to tell what exactly is happening and in what order it's happening. But really at the end of chapter 4, things are a bit more explicit. You see, in the middle of the groom's detailed description of the bride's body, he says this in Song of Songs 4 verse 12, "'A garden locked is my sister.'" My bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. The terms garden, spring, and fountain are a collection of euphemisms all used for human sexuality. But in this case, if you notice, they're locked, they're sealed. In other words, they aren't open to each other sexually. That is until the woman responds at the end of chapter 4 to her beloved's description. And she says what? At the end of chapter 4, verse 16, if you're already in 5, look up to verse 16. She says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now, I know this may not be what you would say in a similar moment, but poetically speaking, she is telling us that what was once locked and sealed is now open and exposed. Are you picking up what she's throwing down? And so, the groom responds in the beginning of chapter 5 with joy. This is why he is so excited and thankful, and he celebrates. Look at verse 1, Song of Songs, chapter 5. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Again, you may not drink your wine with your milk, but what he is celebrating poetically is that they have enjoyed physical intimacy, perhaps for the very first time together, and he is saying, it's wonderful. He enjoyed it. It was thrilling. And their friends are even pumped for them. Now, I don't think their friends were watching. I think that's really important to distinguish. <laughs> Instead, 
having heard about their consummation, about their union, their community celebrates with them. And what do they say? Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. They're happy for their friends. This is where I think the design of love begins to, or design of friendship rather, begins to come into focus. Notice something very counterintuitive to us in our particular cultural moment. The couple's private moments are shared with their single friends. Let that settle in and let it like really rub like sandpaper against some presumptions we have about intimacy and about what is private and what we talk about and what we don't talk about. Remember, there's a consistent third party throughout this entire erotic, erotic love poem. That's interesting. It's not just two people. This other group keeps showing up like, yay you, this is exciting. Go team, that must have been fun. Tell us more, right? There is a community around them. That's beautiful and so counterintuitive to us, isn't it? See, this tells us that romantic love shouldn't be an isolating relationship in which newlyweds abandon all their single friends and get new married friends so they can talk about super secret married stuff that single folks just wouldn't understand, right? Am I preaching to you yet? If you need a text, we've been trying to give you Song of Songs for a really long time, and here it is. Not at all. In fact, romantic love isn't just shared like information. Here's what you should know and prepare for or think about. Their passions actually foster communal love and celebration. It's generative. It's not competitive. The, the, the bride's friends do not look at all of this in jealousy, but rather in celebration. And the bride doesn't look at something that she's experienced as just about her, but something to participate in community with. See, love in every one of its forms is meant to cultivate intimacy with the entire community. What are we saying? Is that marital intimacy shouldn't undo or harm social intimacy. We shouldn't trade one form of isolation for another. See, intimacy is about being known and loved, and the couple shares their most intimate celebrations, and as we'll see next, also their most alarming troubles with the whole community. They are allowing themselves to be known to each other and their community, and each member is choosing to respond in love. That's intimacy. It's being known and being loved at the same time. That's the design of friendship. See, after enjoying the blissful heights of sexual pleasure and physical intimacy, the couple now, in many respects, comes back down to earth. Similar to the scene in chapter 3, the woman is in bed, but she can't sleep. Look at verse 2. Again, Song of Songs, chapter 5. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And then she says, I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? Now, she may be literally waking up or dreaming or coming awake from a dream or in the middle of sleep and awake. The text is unclear. But what we do know or feel is what she's experiencing, what she's going through. See, the groom knocks presumably at the door of the bedroom. But a door, in many respects, and knocking isn't simply literal. See, a door is a long-standing metaphor with sexual overtones, and we see the same uh, metaphor being used in chapter 8. 
In essence, he's asking if she's sexually open to him. Notice he says, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, right? Remember what we, could we do that again, right? He's likely been out late working, traveling. That's why he has dew on his head. He's just getting home, but she's already in bed, right? And she's like, yo, I'm in my pajamas. I've showered. I'm warm. I'm comfortable. I'm good. Give me space, right? She draws particular attention to her feet, which may seem odd, but there's another euphemism. Feet were a sexual euphemism, literally lower members. We see this in Ruth's story as well, in Ruth chapter 3. So while he's experiencing, or rather expressing a desire for sexual intimacy, she's expecting reluctance. The young couple is experiencing, again, or perhaps for the very first time, the awkward, vulnerable, frustrating, and confusing tension of marital sex life. Sometimes one person is down and open and ready, and the other person is like, I'm good. So what do you do? Now, for some of us, this might seem like trouble in paradise, right? Missing each other like this, though, is common. It's natural. It is normal. But it's really hard to talk about, isn't it? It's simple. In other words, I think to have sex, it's a lot more complicated to talk about sex. Have we not been learning that the past month? In fact, just this week, I had to share with my group, this is really hard for me with Laura, with my wife, just to talk about it. In other words, I think it's simple to be lovers. It's really complex to be friends. This is, I think, what the young couple is beginning to experience. The Apostle Paul actually gives language for couples in these types of conversations. So meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because I think it'll be good to retinize or to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Into the New Testament, after Romans, before many of the epistles. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, 4, and 5. Paul is essentially responding to a letter that the Corinthian church had written him asking some questions. And one of those questions likely had to do with what Paul talks about here. He talks about couples and not having sex. The husband, he says in verse 3, should give his, to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, uh, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, we don't have time, but you, know, you talk about a text that has been manipulated and misused through church history. This would certainly be one. And, and I would also, just as a brief aside, I know one of the challenging things about this series and going through Song of Songs and talking about sex in general is learning to piece apart what the church or religion has taught us and what the Bible and what God actually teaches. And so I think that's really something important for us to be mindful of as we go and continue to go through this series. What is it that we have learned? And someone says, well, I got a verse. I'll misquote it, manipulate it, and use it for your shame. And what is it that the God of the Bible is actually teaching, sharing, and giving us hope about? And so this is certainly something that takes wisdom. It takes God's spirit. It takes community. But in particular, it should be stated that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that Paul, a single man, 
A single man who says this repeatedly. It's like he's proud of it. Almost every chance he gets, just remember, I'm not married, right? He's giving married couples marriage advice. Now, married couples, how often do you not share something with one of your single friends because you think they won't get it? They don't know. They don't know the complexities that I face in my life. And maybe that's true. But Paul gives us a completely different perspective where he is able to speak and minister the truth of the gospel to married couples as a single individual. In other words, he's cultivating friendship across lines of marital status because it's good for his soul and for theirs. See, that alone tells us there's some unique relationship that we still have within Christian community between single and married people. Additionally, Paul lays out one of the most countercultural principles that we find anywhere in ancient literature. Anywhere. He says the husband and wife have mutual conjugal rights and bodily ownership. Did you hear that? In the Greco-Roman world, women were socially subservient, even if not especially in marriage. Paul teaches mutuality. In other words, he's teaching friendship. Of course, this doesn't mean that a spouse can demand sex from their partner whenever they desire and say something dumb like, well, that's my body too. That's abusive and you should not do that and you should repent of it if that's what you're doing and manipulating this text and this idea. Instead, this teaches us that sexual union is not about self-gratification. Sexual union, rather, is about self-giving. Therefore, married couples shouldn't enter into extended periods of withholding themselves without talking. In other words, it shouldn't be a bargaining chip. It shouldn't be something you silently use to manipulate one another into behavior that you desire. We should communicate our needs and mutually agree on a time and way to return to sexual union for the good of our individual souls as well as the whole of our marriage. See, self-giving is an act of friendship. It's knowing someone and responding in love to what we know about them. In the song, the woman knows her beloved wants to have sex. He's making it clear. She's not there. And even though she's not there, she persists, not simply as a sexual impulse, but out of friendship. Let's turn back to Song of Songs, chapter 5. It's an act of service. It's an act of self-giving. Chapter 5, verse 4, she says, My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls." At first, the groom is open, and the bride is closed. Now it seems that the bride is open, but the groom is closed. How real is this? Without the language of friendship, we might think that these two lack sexual chemistry. They can't get on the same page. They don't know what they're doing. We might even determine this relationship is going to fail. This is not good. If This is supposed to be the easy part. See, one myth about sex is that sex makes marriage strong. That sex makes a marriage strong. That's because we think that sex is the ultimate form of intimacy. We think sex strengthens intimacy, and in actuality, the opposite is true. Intimacy strengthens sex. Sex educator Emily uh, Nagaski 
shared recently in her TED Talk uh, that couples who sustain what she calls strong sexual connection for a lifetime do so primarily, she says, because they have a strong friendship. What does all this mean? Especially in light of this idyllic couple missing each other sexually like this. We might boil it down to a single principle. A great sex life cannot overcome a bad friendship, but a great friendship can overcome a bad sex life or no sex life at all. A great sex life cannot overcome a bad friendship, but a great friendship can overcome a bad or challenging season of our sex life or no sex at all. In other words, friendship is the truest form of intimacy. It's being known and it's being loved. That's how God designed it. But as good as friendship is, we got to be real. We're not always very good friends to our spouses or to each other. In fact, our friends hurt us all the time, don't they? In fact, some of us still carry some really deep wounds from decades of being wounded and hurt in friendship. And sometimes we even hurt our friends, don't we? Sometimes on purpose, sometimes unwittingly, we ghost them, not because we forgot to respond, right? But because we were trying to prove a point. Whatever the reason, the bride is hurt. Look at verse 7. Again, she says, The watchman found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. See, the bride's willingness to give herself to her husband exposes her to rejection and therefore to pain and suffering and trauma. And remember, we, we're reading a double meaning in, at work here in the poetic sort of structure of what she's saying. It's unlikely that she physically leaves the bedroom and walks out into the street. More likely is that it's a continuation of the metaphor that she started to use back in chapter 3. Remember, she's wrestling with the story she was told and is telling herself about her virginity. She believed her value as a woman was based on the fact that she had never had sex. And now, having given her virginity to him whom my soul loves, he now seems distant. She might feel that now she's undesirable after she had just started to reframe her understanding of her worthiness. So she feels beaten, bruised, exposed, and isolated. The most straightforward reading tells us that her expectations for intimacy in married life and for herself aren't being met. She's lonely. She feels exposed. She feels isolated. This is where true friendship really matters. When we're not doing well, when our friends aren't doing well, when we're learning new things about ourselves, and when we're learning new things about our friends, when they feel exposed, when we feel exposed, when we're afraid, yet it's usually at these moments, it's often at these moments where lies about intimacy and friendship push us to isolation and loneliness. This is where we meet what we'll simply call the distortion of friendship. See, if intimacy is being known and loved at the same time, then isolation and loneliness is about being known but not loved, or it's about being loved but not known. Pastor Tim Keller has called this our greatest fear. Our greatest fear is that we will have one and not the other, that we'll be known and not loved or loved but not really known. Let's break that down for just a minute so we see how these distortions come alive in us and in our community See, sometimes we, we love each other, but we don't really know each other. We keep things on the surface. Sometimes we boil down friendship to the feeling we have when we're around somebody. 
Many wonderful pop hits are written about this very idea, about how I feel when I'm around someone. However, when good feelings about someone don't lead to curiosity about their life, about who they are, about what makes them tick, it's not only superficial, superficial, it can be damaging. To be sure, not every friend needs all your information, right? You don't need to be fully known by every single person. Praise God, that sounds exhausting to me, right? To know everything about all of you and you know everything about me, that's a lot of work. But true intimacy requires knowledge. True intimacy requires knowledge. I learned this early on in my marriage, didn't I, Laura? I loved Laura. There was no question. But y'all, I used to come home from work. She would ask me, how was your day? I'd be like, it was incredible. Here's what I'd worked on. Here's the wonderful lunch I had. Here's all of the people that I met. What's for dinner? What are we doing tonight? A couple of uh, months into this, she very clearly but very kindly said, you know you never ask me about my day. How was your day? <laughs> in other words, what's she exposing? She was exposing something in me about my vision of friendship. It was about love. You know I love you. I love you. Right? I mean, we got married, right? We're good. But I had no curiosity. I didn't really want to get to know her didn't really want to understand more. And see, I saw friendship or intimacy as love but not knowledge. See, being loved but not known makes us lonely, no matter how close we are with somebody, married or not. While we might enjoy our time with someone, even our spouse, we aren't really seen, valued, because we're not really known. See, this manifests in our friendships, even within our church community, and I think it does so through being vague with one another. Here's what I mean. We share just enough information to maintain a level of relational safety. Because the real fear is, is that I like where love is right now in this relationship, but if you knew more about me, you may not love me the same way. You may not like me. I may not be relationally safe. And so we give enough information to make sure that we're still loved and get you off my back. So I can say, I did the confessing my sin thing, or I did the accountability thing. We're good. In other words, we say things like, life is crazy right now. And in our head, do you know what's really going on? Uh, my boss questioned my integrity I, in front of the entire team. I yelled at her because she's dumb, and I got angry. And when I got home, I yelled at all of my kids and blamed them and my husband. In essence, what have we done? We've disbelieved what the Apostle John says, that if we walk in the light as God is in the light, then we'll have fellowship. We think we'll have fellowship as long as you don't know the truth about me will be good as long as you don't really know who I am. See, lighter knowledge is seen as a threat to love, not the way intimacy is actually fostered. And so we isolate. Church, this tells us that we need healing. You are not bad for doing that. We need healing. We have learned to do this. We have learned to believe that love is, cannot trust knowledge and truth. Other times we do the opposite. We know each other, but we don't love each other well. It's tempting to think about friendship in terms of information or familiarity, like when you have known someone a long time or when someone knows a lot of people. However, when knowing someone and their story or situation doesn't lead to appropriate actions of love and of care, our friendship becomes hurtful and even manipulative. See, there's a responsibility that comes with knowing things about each other. And that responsibility is love, to take care of what you know about someone. 
This is what Paul was getting at when he wrote in Romans chapter 14, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In other words, in Rome, they're like, I know you hate when I eat meat, but it's delicious and I'm going to do it in front of you and I don't care how it makes you feel. Paul is like, that's not what we do. That's not what we do. When you have knowledge, you respond and you take care of that knowledge with love. If you know something about your brother or sister, it should change the way you live. It should change the way you relate to them. It should change the way that you order your life. See, being known but not loved also makes us lonely. While people may know us and know what we're going through, it's their loving response to that knowledge that creates intimacy. Are you with me? See, this can manifest in our church community too, and it manifests in the form of apathy or presumption. We know a lot about each other. In response, we may say, thinking and praying, we may even close every group time in prayer, and then we don't talk to those people or do anything with them for an entire week, right? I know stuff about them. They'll catch me up later. We might even do a bunch of really awesome things for someone, but never, ever, ever ask a question, right? I'm convinced, church, my brothers and sisters, that responding to knowledge rightly always begins with a question. Always begins with a question. In other words, I need to know more information about how you will feel loved, or I don't want to just do a bunch of stuff if it's actually hurting and making the problem worse. I has to start with a question. How can I show up? What do you need? Can I make you a meal? Do you have a good counselor? Can I give you a ride? How can I show you love? I know you've got a big week coming up. What would it look like for me to show you love during that week? How will you feel cared for? I know tomorrow is the anniversary of your mom's death. How are you? Do you want to grab some coffee? Do you see how we take that knowledge and we match it with curiosity? It means that when we don't respond to knowledge with curiosity, ready to take action, that is what causes isolation and loneliness. In other words, you saw me, but you didn't do anything about it. You knew what I was going through, but you never asked me a question. See, it harms intimacy. This tells us, too, that we need healing. See, in either case, when we know but don't love or we love but don't know, what we're failing to do is actually give ourselves. In other words... We seek a friendship without sacrifice, and that's the distortion. We seek friendship without sacrifice. Therefore, isolation and loneliness persist because intimacy is vacated. Intimacy is lacking. And then we look to marriage in general, and we look to sex in particular to give us something that really we're looking for in our friendships, that we really desire in our friendships. And neither of them can supply. Marriage and sex cannot supply the intimacy that you and I wholly, holistically need. And so we need healing. I hope you see, this scene really I don't think is about marriage. It's about friendship. It's about intimacy. To be sure, the bride's pain, I think, is anchored in her sexual identity. However, the suffering is caused by the fact that she steps into the light and doesn't feel seen. Fear shows up because it feels like she's known but not loved. She's like, I told you about this. You knew this was going to be hard for me. Where did you go? Where are you? How come you haven't shown up in this? And so in her dissonance and confusion, what does she do? It's biblical. She calls her friends. Courageously, she refuses to go into isolation, and she goes, you never believe what this dude did to me. She calls her friends. 
Look at verse 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. They're her friends. If you find my beloved, that you tell him I'm sick with love. So dramatic. I love it. She asks, well, really, she tells them, help me find this dude. Help me find the one that I've lost. Tell him I'm sick. Find him. She's feeling vulnerable. She's feeling unsure. She's feeling unsettled. She's asking for reassurance and the retrieval of what's been lost. Now, God help us. There's a lot of times that a married individual is going to come to you and they're going to want to unload on their spouse. It's all good. That happens. Sometimes we get angry at each other, believe it or not, right? The, the, the temptation is to go, oh, they came to me because I see them and love them in ways that nobody sees them and loves them. And yeah, that dude sucks, right? And really start doubling down on her or him or whoever they're upset with. And honestly, we can do that in any friendship, can't we? Someone chose to come to me and talk about him? Love it. I hate him too. I actually have laminated a spreadsheet with all of the things that he has failed to do and all of the things he has done to me. Right? We're ready. Can I show you what good friends do? Not that you're not good friends. Look at verse 9. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure him? Now, if we read our sort of modern sarcasm into this, we think that's exactly what they're doing. But it's like they're baiting her. Like, what makes him so special? You're the most beautiful woman we know. You're awesome. You could have any man you wanted, right? What makes this dude so special? It's essentially what they're asking. But we get this sense, don't we? If we think about it a little bit more, that they're actually inviting the bride to remember why she wanted this dude to be her groom. Tell us about him. See, I think one of the most beautiful things we can do when a marriage is struggling is learn to graciously, lovingly, humbly point them back to their spouse. Not by saying, look, I'm going to fill this intimacy void, but actually this fosters intimacy by heralding and celebrating and helping to protect and cultivate the union of their marriage. And she's more than willing. She's actually ready to answer this. She has her own laminated piece of paper, right? She goes into long physical description of her beloved that ends in the most unexpected way. And you can even imagine friends like glazing over, like this was more information than we actually wanted, right? She says this, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. Half of them leave the room immediately. Distinguished among 10,000, his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, brown as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are, rod, or his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, of Jerusalem. <sighs> okay. So, much like the groom's description in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, the bride describes the groom not just physically, but she moves from his eyes downward about how she feels about him. 
It's sexual. It's charged. It's even uncomfortable to read. And yet it ends with the most odd of juxtapositions. Notice what she says. This is my beloved and my friend. The groom used similar language in verse 1. He calls her my sister, meaning darling or companion. It conveys an intimacy beyond sex. And by the end, the bride calls him my friend, a term with similar connotations. You see, they're not just lovers. Fundamentally, they are self-givers. They're friends. Their intimacy is built on friendship, not on sex. But we've noticed they're surrounded by all these friends too, aren't they? Much is made about the intimacy of two becoming one in marriage, and it is a big deal. But that's not the only one-body ethic in the Scriptures. When writing to Rome, Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, For as in one body we are many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. See, while husbands and wives become one flesh through marriage, you and I become one body through salvation. And each, each type of oneness tells us the truth about God's nature and character. Author Rebecca McLaughlin explains that friendship is not the consolation prize for those who fail to gain romantic love. Friendship is another way in which God manifests an aspect of his love for us. She goes on to say, McLaughlin does, that to say that sexual oneness conveys exclusivity of God's love, while Christian friendship demonstrates the inclusivity of God's love. Both foster a deep and meaningful intimacy that eases loneliness at least in part. You see, one of the most startling distinctions found anywhere in Scripture about the people of God is that you and I are called friends of God. The first to bear this distinction was our spiritual forefather, uh, Abraham. When God said of him, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You see, because of sin, willfully and unction, world. We know and we love the world. We don't know and love God. And the apostle James says in James chapter 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, the story then of the gospel, of redemption, of the ark of history, is, is this story of friends becoming enemies and enemies becoming friends again. You see, while we were enemies of God, God in Christ fully saw us and he fully loved us. In other words, he befriended us. Jesus carries this language of friendship into his earthly ministry and particularly in his explanation of the cross. He says in John 15, greater love has no one than this. Than what? That someone lays down his life for his friends. See, notice Jesus' friendship is a real friendship. It's self-giving. And it's a friendship with Jesus that brings real healing and complete healing. Why? Because he's the only one who truly knows everything about you and still loves you. See, no matter how much your spouse knows or your best friends know, there's still stuff you don't even know about yourself that you couldn't even tell them. So they don't fully know you. But there is one who knows everything about you, and he's like, yep, I'm still good. I still want in. Isn't that amazing? He still wants to be your friend. When everything in you tells you, man, if anyone found this out about me, they would reject me. God's like, I already know it. Bet. I'm in. 
See, there's only one friendship that will never leave you isolated and lonely. Even in marriage, you will feel isolated and lonely at times. In church community, you will feel isolated and lonely. In a big city of three million people, you will feel isolated and lonely all the time. But there is one person who knows everything about you, loves you completely and wholly and without any equivocation. That's healing. And see, when this friendship becomes central, when he is the source of our truest intimacy, we are freed from the fear of self-giving. We are also released from the pressure of seeking intimacy where it cannot be found. You see, friendship with Jesus does this wonderful work of making us truly great friends. So may it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help and we ask for your healing. There are a host of ways that we have not loved well that we have not been loved well. And so would you heal us? Would you help us? Would you teach us? Would you protect and comfort us so that we would become a truly friend, a true friend who sees and knows and loves and that we would receive true friendship, being seen and loved. And may that kind of community, may that kind of friendship always boast of the true friendship that we found in our Heavenly Father through the work of your Son, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.